ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. On today's episode, we get a chance to sit in on a recent Discovery Institute webinar featuring geologist Casey Luskin interviewing author Eric Castle about Castle's recent book, Animal Algorithms, Evolution and the Mysterious Origin of Ingenious Instincts. This episode covers the first half of the webinar, where Casey and Eric focus on some of the Animal Kingdom's master navigators. The first voice you'll hear is that of the webinar's host, Daniel Reeves. Okay, well, I think it's about that time to begin. Uh, We already have a sizable crowd, and it's still increasing here, so I'll give everyone a a few seconds to continue dropping in. Uh, My name is Daniel Reeves. I serve as the Education and Outreach Director for the Center for Science and Culture here at Discovery Institute. And I'm pleased to to introduce another webinar in this series of um, book launch webinars that we've been hosting for a couple of years now. Um, So this one is on animal algorithms. And I'll be introducing our two guests today, um, Casey Luskin and Eric Castle here in a second. Um, First of all, I just wanted to mention a couple of um, kind of mechanics for how these things work if you haven't joined one of our book launch webinars before. Um, the first thing is that, you know, we'll be having a brief introduction and conversation about the book. And during that time, it'd be great for you to go ahead and open up your Q&A box that you'll see at the bottom of the Zoom screen. And just to get started, to get comfortable using that, feel free to drop in either your location where you're joining from or your name, just as a way of testing it out to see how that works. Um, it's always nice to see where people are joining from around the world, around the country. Um, And then as soon as we start our conversation about the book, feel free to start submitting your questions for the author, and we'll be kind of filtering through those and uh, pitching them towards the end of the call today. The call will be about an hour long, so um, we've got uh, well over 100 people on the call already, and uh, there'll be plenty of questions, so we apologize in advance if we don't get to all of those questions today. Um, But... Uh, let's see. So that's about all you need to know as far as the, uh, the mechanics of this. At the end, we'll uh, mention again where you can find the book online and a little bit about um, how to help, help us promote this book. Um, but without further ado, I'll hand things over to Casey. Casey needs uh, very little introduction. I think most people that uh, get our emails or subscribe to our events are familiar with Casey. He's been involved since the inception of the intelligent design conversation, really, and is involved in many different areas of research and conversation around intelligent design. Um, I could say many things about him. I'd say the most recent thing is that he just um, returned to the U.S. from his studies in geology, completing a PhD at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. So we are very pleased to have him back here at the office in Seattle, and he's managing all sorts of research programs and other things like that. So welcome, Casey, and I'll, I'll hand things over to you. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's really a pleasure to be with you all today. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. This is the Animal Algorithms webinar with author Eric Castle. It's really a pleasure to be able to interview Eric for this webinar today. And so first, I'd like to introduce him uh, for our participants. So Eric Castle is an expert in navigation systems, including GPS, and has a long-time interest in animal navigation. He has more than four decades of experience in systems engineering related to aircraft navigation and safety. He served as an engineering consultant for NASA and the FAA, or Federal Aviation Administration, and he has developed computer 
computer algorithms for safety systems and has published over 30 technical papers and numerous technical reports. His academic training includes bachelor's degrees in biology and electrical engineering, uh, uh, biology from George Mason University and electrical engineering from Villanova University, as well as a master's in science and religion from Biola University. And uh, uh, that, of course, included the history and philosophy of science. And he has had a long-term interest in studying various aspects of animal behavior. So Eric, I just want to say off the bat that your book was such a delight to uh, sort of edit and, and read through as you're going through the publication process. And in his endorsement of your book, um, paleontologist Gunter Beckley says that it fills an important gap in the ID literature. And I just want to say I fully agree with that statement because no one, I think, had, had fully attempted to tackle, you haven't even, no one has ever fully attempted yet, but no one has even really given an attempt to tackle animal behavior in such a manner. And the work that you've done here is so important. It's a really a natural extension of where ID thinking needs to go. And I'm very excited about seeing ID breaking into this new field of animal behavior. So uh, surprisingly, I didn't fully appreciate the title of your book, Animal Algorithms, until yesterday when I was rereading the book at an airport. And I appreciate, okay, we're talking about literally programming in animal brains. I mean, you define an algorithm as a formal procedure for any mathematical operation, especially a set of well-defined rules for solving a problem in a finite number of steps. And what you're saying is that animals are literally programmed with algorithms, hard-coded, presumably into their brains, to allow them to perform complex calculations that afford all kinds of behaviors vital for their survival. And you said in your book that those who program computer algorithms for a living are especially well situated to appreciate how complex an animal or an algorithm needs to be to function. And I don't program computers for a living, but I did write something like 30,000 lines of Python code during my PhD. I know that some people won't consider Python real computer programming, but suffice to say algorithms are complicated and they really are a set of ordered instructions. If you get one thing wrong, they don't work. So I want to learn more in this conversation about why you think animal behaviors are like algorithms and what you think the implications are for the ability of these behaviors to evolve by Darwinian evolution. So my first question for you is what got you started on this Animal Algorithms book project? Uh, thanks, Casey. Thanks for, uh, for having me on the webinar. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so the beginning of it goes back quite a ways, actually. Um, I only started actually writing the book a few years ago, relatively few. But the origins of it go back a lot farther when I was um, working on aircraft navigation systems and then just happened to be reading several articles um, about animal migration and navigation and was amazed at the ability of animals to navigate so accurately and repeatedly. And that really caught my attention. And it was also about the same time frame that I was studying uh, biology in, in an undergraduate program. And when I sort of put two things together in terms of, okay, this is a pretty sophisticated ability that animals have, and then started asking questions about how did such an ability even evolve in the first place? And how do you explain how they're actually implemented? So that, that, that's kind of the origin of it. Um, and as time went on, I started looking at other kinds of animal behaviors and was finding the same kinds of, similar kinds of behaviors 
that are complex and to me difficult to explain from a Darwinian evolutionary uh, point of view. That's great. And of course, you mentioned in your book that you had a career as an engineer working on aircraft navigation systems. And I assume the answer is, is yes, it did, but maybe you could elaborate. I mean, how do you think that uh, uh, this field of work that you were doing prepared you to study topics like animal navigation and migration? And, and how do the systems that animals use for navigation stack up against our own human technology, like what we use in airplanes and, and other technologies? Right. Yeah, good question. So uh, a couple of things. One, we already mentioned that there's, there's definitely algorithms involved. But from a bigger perspective, um, when you talk about sophisticated navigation systems like those that are used by uh, modern aircraft, these are highly engineered systems. Um, they, they typically, you know, commercial aircraft have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lines of code in the navigation and, and flight control systems. So they're, they're highly complex. And there's a number of aspects of the engineering that's involved when you build systems like that. One is they're, they're highly integrated. So you have to, to, to match up not just the software, but the hardware, the sensors, um, the flight control system, et cetera. And then all of this has to be done in a, in a coherent manner. So there's, there's a number of fundamental engineering principles that are involved whenever you develop a system such as this. And it turns out, surprisingly, not just to biologists, but, but to those of us that are engineers as well, when you start examining some of these systems in, in animals, they exhibit the same kind of principles that, that we use in, in developing uh, man-made navigation systems. And the, my favorite example is actually in um, a, a, a desert ant that resides in, um, as, it, as the name implies, in deserts in Africa. And these ants actually employ several different types of navigation sensors. They use a, a sun compass, a polarized light compass. They have an odometer. They do chemotaxis, in other words, with sensing chemicals. And, and then they, they use all that information to, uh, in an integrated manner, and they actually do what, what biologists call path integration, what, what's, what us engineers would typically call inertial navigation, um, basically the same thing, where they integrate all this information and then are able to, um, to not only navigate accurately to where they want to go, but the, one of the unique things about it is whenever they go on, a, for example, a, a foraging excursion from their home nest, they can um, go on a very circuitous path away from the nest, turning a number of times, different directions. But then when they go to return home, they are able to actually compute a direct path from wherever they are back to their home nest. And again, it's based on this inertial navigation type of system. So it's, it's, very, it's very surprising that such a system exists in an ant. That's absolutely incredible, Eric. I mean, you, you say that uh, they use what, you, what we use, but it might be more like we use the kind of systems that they use. I mean, the sophistication here is just incredible. You're talking about path integration. The this brings me back a little bit of like um, anxiety and, and maybe like some PhD, TSD, as I like to say, of being out in 
the field doing my field work during my geology uh, degree in, in South Africa. And you would go and you'd, you'd wander off looking for rocks and you would totally go off the path, not knowing where you are. And then you got to find your way back to the car. But ants are able to do these calculations automatically. I mean, things that we human beings struggle to do and they're just programmed to do it. I, I just find that absolutely incredible. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the other thing about this is that, um, as you imply, we are just now catching up technology-wise with what many animals have been doing for thousands or millions of years. Um, you know, our ability, human ability to navigate long distances didn't really become a reality until sometime in the 1700s with the development of accurate clocks that could be used on ships. Prior to that, um, ships had a lot of trouble navigating very long distances because they couldn't determine longitude in an accurate way. And there's a famous example, I think, that I cite in the book about a fleet of British ships that, that uh, got lost, ran aground, and, and the ships sank um, because they were lost and didn't have accurate navigation information. So that launched a big project uh, by the British Navy to try to develop a, a better system. But so there was that period of time. And then it really wasn't until the 20th century that with the development of aircraft that uh, we developed much better navigation systems. And it's taken a long time to get there. And finally, with GPS, we have uh, a system that actually finally starts to mimic what many animals have been doing for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you talk in your book about uh, examples of uh, jets landing at the wrong airports. And you would think that would never happen in our, our modern day of technology, but yet it is so vital to have accurate navigation information. And I think, we'll get into this more, Eric, in the conversation, but I think that this is actually a really good analogy to the way Darwinian evolution works. Because if you're flying an airplane, my dad was a pilot. I've flown with my dad many times over the years, and I've actually been in a plane when it was losing, when it lost power. And it's a pretty scary experience, let me tell you. Uh, but you know, you've got to get everything right in a plane where it falls out of the sky. I'm not telling you think anything you don't already know. But it's just like Darwinian evolution, because if you have you know, the whole system working, but one component fails in an organism, then it dies. And if it dies, it doesn't pass on its genes to the next generation, and it's an evolutionary dead end. So I think that the analogy to piloting a plane or navigating you know, where you've got to get everything right or you fall out of the sky and die is a lot like Darwinian evolution. But we'll, we'll come more to that later. Um, so obviously, your book is titled Animal Algorithms, and I want to know exactly what you mean when you say that animal behaviors are like an algorithm. And in fact, you and your book distinguish animal behaviors that are programmed from those that are learned, like say many primate behaviors. And you say at the very beginning, you're not talking about these learned behaviors. You're talking about pro program behaviors. And in your book, you want to say you only want to study those behaviors that are programmed. So what is an algorithm? And what do you mean when you say that these behaviors are programmed and what makes them like an algorithm? So first of all, yeah, they're programmed in the sense that they're innate. And, 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 and most of these animals can actually perform these behaviors uh, the moment they're born. And so they don't require development. Now, some animals and, and some behaviors, they do uh, refine the behavior over time. That goes on. So there is a little bit of a learning process there. But the basic behavior is there the moment they're born. So that, that they're innate and not learned. Um, 
And then the, the algorithm part of it, there's actually a number of different aspects of this. Uh, um, like you mentioned earlier, typically when we think of an algorithm, it's more of a mathematical algorithm. And that is the case for um, many of these behaviors, particularly the ones involving navigation, where the animal is actually um, computing a path. So that, that involves um, trigonometry or some other form of uh, mathematics. But other types of algorithms that are involved here are um, more along the lines of decision making. So for example, in the social insects that, that are discussed, these, these insects actually uh, are programmed to make decisions about the behavior that they're going to perform. In other words, are they going to forage? Are they going to take care of the queen or take care of the um, other animals, um, feed, things like that. So there's a, a lot of different behaviors that go on in social insect colonies. And the algorithms are actually a, a, a process where they sense the conditions that the colony is in, and then they make a decision about what, what is the optimum behavior to perform at any particular time. So that is a pretty sophisticated algorithm. Hmm. So along these lines, you define a key concept in your book that you talk about a lot called a complex program behavior or a CPB. What do you mean by a complex program behavior? So, yeah, there, there's a number of aspects that, that go into what I was calling a, a complex program behavior. First of all, it's complex. It's not just simple in the sense of sometimes if you think of um, um, some uh, reactions where you have a stimulus and a response, um, that's, that's fairly simple. These behaviors are more complex than that. Um, they're programmed, like we talked about, they're purposeful in the sense that they always have some goal. There's, there's some particular goal in mind. And then, again, the fact that they're heritable. They're, they're not learned. They are innate. So uh, they're presumably in the genome in some way. There is some epigenetics involved uh, in some of these that we found. But, but for the most part, we think they have to be in the genome. Although, again, in many cases, we really don't know how they're actually coded in the genome. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And this was one of the most incredible things you talked about in your book, um, how these tiny brains of an ant, or you talk about the worm C. elegans, which has only, I think you said, 302 neurons. So how, how can a mind that small be programmed? And not just programmed with behaviors, but you talk about how these small brains are programmed to learn new behaviors and also then to have a memory so it can remember what it learned. How can a brain that small have such sophistication? Well, that, that's kind of the, the big question, um, and it doesn't just apply to, to the, um, um, the C. elegans in that example, but it applies to uh, many other animals as well. You have a tiny brain that actually exhibits, is able to exhibit a number of different behaviors, and in, the case, in this case, they, they've actually been able to map the entire brain because it's such a small number of neurons and they're relatively large, they do have the, the actual physical map. But we have no idea how the programming of the behavior actually goes on in the brain. And just to expand that analogy, um, the um, other kinds of insects that are discussed in the book, uh, 
honeybees in particular and, and ants, they also have relatively small brains. Now, in their, their case, they're approximately a million neurons, which is still a really, really small brain compared to mammals, for example. Um, but they also have really sophisticated behaviors. And so somehow or another, these behaviors are programmed into the neural networks that comprise their brains. And again, we really have no idea how that's done. There has been, there's been some research showing how um, some of the most simple behaviors might be uh, encoded in, in the, a simple neural network, but that's kind of the extent of it. We really don't have any idea how these more sophisticated behaviors are programmed. It's just incredible. So I want to say that, you know, without trying to sound too much like an infomercial, your book really is fun to read. You showcase so many different examples of animal behavior that are absolutely incredible. Um, I guarantee you someday somebody's got to make a documentary about what you talk about in this book, because there's so many examples that, that would just blow people's minds. So one of my favorite examples is the wasps who will build landmarks for themselves so they can find their way to their food stashes. That's very intelligent behavior, very rational behavior to build some kind of, of a marker that you can recognize so you know where you stored your food. Um, or I think it's incredible, the Arctic tern that spends its summers in the Arctic and then migrates south to spend the summer again in the Antarctic. And it basically spends its whole life chasing the summer, going from north to south, never ending up in a hemisphere where it's not summer. But what really mystified me, and we already talked about this a little bit, is the idea of path integration, where animals keep, keep track of their compass heading and distance traveled so they can fly directly home, but not necessarily along the path that they took. And you say that they can do this without necessarily following landmarks. And you talk about honeybees and their ability to navigate using the sun's angle uh, at different times of day. So they can learn how to navigate using the sun's angle at different times of day to find their way home, regardless of what time it is, or they can use polarized light by studying different regions of the sky to determine the position of the sun. And you say that, that doing this to be able to find their way home requires doing trigonometry, spherical ge geometry, and other complex math. And you know what, they have a brain with a million neurons, and I have supposedly 100 billion neurons in my brain, and I don't think I can do those kinds of calculations in my brain. And I find this all incredible. So the fact that these kinds of features evolved really just makes me wonder how did they arise or how could they arise via an unguided stepwise Darwinian process? I'd love to see a stepwise evolutionary explanation for this if it exists. And I'm wondering, are you aware of attempts to explain behaviors like this through a, a standard, typical Darwinian model? Uh, the short answer is no. Um, I, yeah, I, I have not come across anything in the literature about those kinds of behaviors and how they could have evolved. Um, and I think it's such a, a daunting task to try to explain how something as sophisticated as an algorithm, particularly a mathematical type of algorithm, how that could have evolved in the first place. And then, and then there's several elements of that, right? It has to be in the genome somehow. And then that information that's in the genome then has to be encoded in a neural network when the brain develops. And then it all has to be run um, as the animal is performing the behavior. So there's a lot of, a lot of unanswered questions about how all that takes place. Yeah, for, for those of you who have the book, Figure 3.3, 3, 
was really helpful for me. <laughs> I know that means nothing to people who haven't done the book in front of them, but when you get the book, rewatch this and look at figure 3.3. It talks about the different components that are necessary for animal navigation and migration behavior to work. You've got to have navigation sensor physiology, a navigation algorithm. You've got to have destination location information, migration decision algorithm, and migratory physiology to, to implement all of this. And if you're missing one of those components, one of those elements, then it doesn't work. Um, and those five separate groups of genes, and as you put it, other genetic information in the genome, they all have to be there in order for these navigation and migration algorithms to work. Um, so, so let's talk about another example you give, the monarch butterfly, um, which in North America requires three generations, you say, for the migration to complete itself. And so that has to be uh, genetically programmed because obviously the butterflies that are maybe in the middle of that migration pathway, how could they have learned where they're going? They, they were... They weren't even alive when the migration started. So how do they know where to go? They've never been to the destination. Um, to me, that obviously implies, I'm, I'm sure you, you argue this in the book very persuasively, that the information had to be preloaded into those organisms uh, when they're born. You call it preloaded software. So where do they get the preloaded software that tells them where to go? And how does this evolve by an unguided Darwinian process? Again, that, that's a really difficult question that, that nobody has an answer for. Um, there, there's, there are some theories out there about how, in some cases, animals might have um, developed the behavior, um, basically learned the behavior, and then somehow that, that behavior gets transferred into the genome. How that happens, uh, that's a good question. I, I, it's a theory that I've seen um, people propose, but I don't understand how it actually could even work uh, in reality because you have a behavior that somehow then gets trans transmitted into the gametes and the, in the genome. I, I don't even understand how that theoretically even works, but it's, it's a serious proposal that a number of people um, believe in. It sounds very Lamarckian almost. I mean, if we still lived in the yeah. days of Lamarck, maybe you could believe it could arise by an unguided evolutionary mechanism. And of course, there are new, new they call them neo-Lamarckian mechanisms. So maybe there is some influence of, you know, inheritance of acquired characteristics going on here. But as you said, it's yet to be demonstrated. So these sound very mysterious at the, at the present time. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned, you know, obviously that to navigate animals and humans both use some of the same things. We both use landmarks. We both use the sun. We use magnetic compass. We use stars, chemicals, smells, temperature, gravity. So who is better at navigating, humans or animals? And I want to also, you know, kind of throw into this, how has technology changed the way we humans navigate? We talked about this on the phone earlier today, you know, how and maybe a hundred years ago, humans navigated, or say uh, uh, 2000 years ago, humans navigated much differently than they do today. So how has technology changed the way we navigate? Well, yeah, the first part of your question, uh, fundamentally animals are better navigators than humans. If, if you think about a human with no technology, we're very poor navigators. Um, yeah, we can use the sun because uh, you know, we can figure out, you know, the sun rises, yeast sets in the west, etc. So we're able to use that information and landmarks. But other than that, humans are very poor natural navigators. 
whereas all of these animals are actually expert navigators. It's all, they're all designed to perform um, accurate navigation um, to suit their own purposes. Um, in terms of technology, I think, as I mentioned before, it's only been in within the last couple of hundred years that we've even developed any, um, any useful technology for, for navigation, and particularly in, in the 20th century when the age of aircraft, that we did develop um, inertial navigation, radio navigation, and of course now GPS. Uh, so things have changed quite a bit in, in, in that sense. But, um, but again, we're basically just trying to catch up to what animals have been doing for a long time. <laughs> No, it's really, really incredible. Um, and you mentioned navigating using the sun. I did not appreciate how important the sun is for human navigation till I moved to the Southern Hemisphere during my PhD. Uh, and, you know, obviously, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, which is where I grew up, the sun is always in the South. Um, but when I moved to South Africa, uh, the sun is always in the North. And so I lived just North of the university. And there were literally a couple times where I would get in my car to drive home from school. And I would start driving in the opposite direction south because in my mind I was you know orienting myself with the sun I knew I was supposed to go north and for me going north meant you drive away from the sun and so I was going in the I, I didn't even think about it I, I, I did not even appreciate how much intuitively as a human being I used the sun to navigate until the sun was in the wrong place and I was going in the wrong direction uh, so it's, it's really amazing how we do have some of these inbuilt things but I mean it doesn't hold a candle to what some of the, the navigation methods of what you're talking about that these, these invertebrates, these insects can do. It's just, just incredible. That was Casey Luskin interviewing author Eric Castle for a recent Center for Science and Culture webinar highlighting Castle's recent book, Animal Algorithms. Get your copy today at Amazon or other online retailers. And stay tuned for part two of the webinar where the conversation turns to some of the Animal Kingdom's master engineers and to Q&A with the webinar's live audience. For ID the Future, this is Tom Gilson. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Steve Meyer, and I want to thank you for being a regular listener of the ID the Future podcast. We appreciate your interest in intelligent design and the work we're doing to develop the case for the theory of intelligent design. And I'd like to encourage you, if you find these broadcasts edifying, intellectually or otherwise, to become a regular financial supporter of the work of the Center for Science and Culture. You may know that we depend entirely on private donations. We don't get any federal money. We don't get government money for our scientific research program. And if you find the work that we're doing interesting, we'd be awfully grateful if you'd consider becoming a partner in that work by providing whatever you're able to ensure that that work goes forward. To give, go to discovery.org slash ID slash donate. That's discovery.org slash ID slash donate. Thanks so much. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.